You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On April 12, 1961, a spaceship, the Vostok 1, launched at 6.07 a.m. from Baikonur Cosmodrome in what today is Kazakhstan. The Vostok 1, which had been fashioned from a ballistic missile, carried Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. At 6.17 a.m., history was made as humanity achieved spaceflight for the first time. It is one of the pivotal moments in the 20th century as humankind moved from beyond the confines of Earth to a new frontier. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today's episode is the fascinating story of the first man in space, Soviet pilot and cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. Here's what we will cover in today's episode. First, we will go over Gagarin's early years growing up in the Soviet Union and how he got into flying. Next, we'll cover how he got involved with the space program and his training. We will also talk about the competition between the USSR and the West, which fueled the push to put a man into space. All of this will lead to Gagarin's historic flight. We will finish by talking about the aftermath of the flight, which included some darker days. Alrighty, let's get started. Yuri Gagarin was born on March 9, 1934, in a small village in western Russia called Klushino. His father was a carpenter and his mother worked on a collective farm. As a child, Yuri and his family suffered through World War II. The Nazis captured Klushino in 1941, burning down its school and dozens of homes. A German officer took over the Gagarin home, and they were forced to live in a tiny mud hut for nearly two years. Young Yuri found ways to fight back against the occupiers, including sabotaging German tanks. But it was a dark time for the family. The Nazis beat Yuri, and his brothers were sent to a labor camp in Poland. However, the family survived, and after the war, Yuri, still a teenager, became an apprentice foundryman at the local steel plant. So, the son of simple peasants? Check. Resistance during the war? Check. Factory worker? Check. Basically, you could not write a better script for a working-class hero. And there's more propaganda gold. Gagarin was athletic, smart, charismatic, and handsome with a killer smile. And he would eventually marry to Valentina Goryacheva and have two daughters, making him a respected family man as well. Always fascinated by planes and flying, Gagarin joined the local flying club and then was accepted into the Soviet Air Force School in 1955. After his training, he was stationed in Murmansk, near the Norwegian border. At the time, the competition between communist Russia and the capitalist United States was fierce, and I don't know if people today really understand how intense the Cold War between the East and West really was. 
You had people building bomb shelters in their backyards and conducting air raid drills. Wars and revolutions and revolts were happening all over the globe, the sides usually falling into eastern and western camps. This included Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Hungary, and dozens of other places. Many nations saw this conflict as a fundamental threat to their very way of life, and above it all hung the threat of nuclear war. A big part of this United States versus the USSR rivalry included both nations trying to gain an edge in space. On October 4, 1957, the same time Gagarin was stationed in Murmansk, the Soviets shocked the world by launching the first satellite into outer space. The satellite was nothing more than a little metal sphere called Sputnik, but getting the first object into space was a great coup for the Soviet Union and sent shivers down the spine of the West. Both sides feared what would happen if the other gained supremacy of the stars. People envisioned their enemy hovering overhead in space stations with nuclear weapons, poised to obliterate them on a whim. And thus, the space race kicked into high gear. The next great step in the race would be to put a man into space. And this takes us back to Yuri Gagarin, who at this time was a simple pilot in the Soviet Air Force. But that was about to change. One day, several mysterious men in suits came to Gagarin's Air Force base and recruited him for a top-secret mission. What that mission was, they didn't say, only that it was for a new type of flying machine. For the Soviets, Gagarin ticked all the boxes. He was a gifted pilot, and at 5 foot 2, or 157 centimeters, he was short enough to fit into a tiny capsule. And perhaps most important, he was a loyal communist. Gagarin wrote in his autobiography that he wanted to make his first space flight as a member of the party. And so off Gagarin went on his new mission, which was a tightly controlled secret. He and his fellow recruits would be the vanguard of the new Soviet manned space program. These men had to endure a battery of grueling medical tests, both physical and mental. The doctors put them through some really awful stuff poking and prodding, oxygen starvation, severe psychological stress. A lot of this was purely speculative, because let's remember, no one knew what weightlessness would do to the human body and mind. Would they be able to fly in such conditions? Would they hallucinate? Would their organs get all jumbled and float around inside their body in zero gravity? The doctors were testing for anything they could think of. I mean, up to this point, only a handful of animals had been sent into space, and most didn't come back alive. You couldn't be too careful. In the end, they whittled down the candidates from a couple of hundred to twenty. These were the very best of the best, with the right stuff, which is a nod to the fantastic book and movie The Right Stuff by Thomas Wolfe. So within the space program, Gagarin would quickly rise to the top of the list. He had the physical profile desired, sure, but all the recruits did as well. But Gagarin would stand out due to his extraordinary discipline, determination, focus, and flying talent, plus his ability to stay calm and collected in difficult situations. Gagarin was so highly thought of when the recruits were asked to vote who should be the first man to fly in space, besides themselves, of course. Almost all of them chose Gagarin. Now, Gagarin and his fellow cosmonauts went through all kinds of training, much of it in a simulator on the ground, basically a mock-up of the spaceship. And with that, let's talk about that ship for a minute. It was called Vostok 1 and was a sphere, super cramped, with only a couple of meters, or six feet, of room inside. It was basically a hollowed-out warhead sitting on a missile built to carry nukes. There were some gauges and very simple controls, but Gagarin was not allowed to touch them without official permission from Moscow. Everything would be automated. But what if he lost radio contact, and there was an emergency and he couldn't get permission to take control? Well, there was a plan for that. There was a keypad with a secret code to unlock the manual controls. The secret code, however, was hidden in an envelope tucked away in the cabin and was hard to reach, on purpose. 
The thinking was that if a pilot could fish it out and enter the code, it would be proof that he hadn't gone crazy in zero gravity. In the end, probably recognizing how silly it was to make the guy risking his butt in space go hunting for a secret code that could save his life when every second counts, his colleagues ignored the bureaucrats in Moscow and just gave him the code. By the way, the Soviet paranoia gets even wackier. The Secret Service, the notorious KGB, actually wanted to put a bomb on board in case the rocket veered off course toward landing in the West, or worse, if Gagarin felt like defecting. But in the end, there was no bomb. Instead, if he did land in the West, Gagarin was under strict orders not to reveal anything. And if he landed in the wilderness, he had a gun and a knife for hunting, plus enough food and water to last 10 days. Just an aside here, I think the philosophy on spaceship design for the Soviets and the Americans really speaks to their different ideologies. Russia, even before the communist regime, was very much a top-down command structure. Power came from the top, those on the bottom were expected to follow orders. The people on the top feared independent and free thinkers as they were a threat to their power. This mindset extended to the space program, including all the way down to the construction of the spaceship. The communists had total control over everything from Moscow. Any flight would be automated. They wanted no deviation from the plan. As for the Americans, individual freedom was highly prized. The capsules were packed with joysticks and switches, and the astronauts were in the driver's seat. In the award-winning 1983 film, The Right Stuff, there's a great scene where the scientists first demonstrate the space capsule to the American astronauts, and it is the astronauts who demand, and get, the ability to actually pilot their own ship. That sort of thing would never have happened in the Soviet Union. Anyhow, that brings us to another difference between the two arch-rivals, the launch pad. For the Soviet Union, the Space Center was at the aforementioned Baikonur Cosmodrome, which, by the way, is still in use today. This was definitely not NASA's famous Cape Canaveral on the Florida coast, with its beaches, pools, and strip malls. Baikonur was built in the harsh and unforgiving Kazakh desert by army workers, some of whom died in the construction. As the Soviets moved closer and closer toward launching their first manned spaceflight, the candidates were all ranked for their readiness to make the flight. On April 8, 1961, a state commission selected Gagarin as the pilot. German Titov was picked as its backup. Titov, by the way, became the second Russian to blast into space, just missing out on the glory. Gagarin and his fellow cosmonauts were moved to Baikonur before the launch, where some final medical checks were performed. The doctor said Gagarin was in good health and good spirits, listening to music and playing chess with the other cosmonauts. Still, Gagarin obviously knew the very real danger that was ahead and wrote a letter to his wife and daughters in case he didn't come home. It said, quote, A simple man has been entrusted with a great national task to blaze a trail into space. End quote. And if the worst happened, Gagarin told his family, quote, Do not waste yourself with grief. Life is life. End quote. Gagarin spent the night before the launch in a little cottage about a mile from the launch pad. He barely slept. The next morning, April 12, 1961, the weather was perfect, light winds and clear skies. Gagarin gave a short speech thanking the workers, then put on his spacesuit. At the last second, someone had the idea to paint CCCP, the Russian acronym for USSR, in bright red letters on his helmet. It wasn't even dry. Some emotional farewells followed, including lots of hugging. I mean, no one was sure if they were ever going to see this guy again. And then Gagarin rode a bus out to the rocket. Vostok 1 was suspended over the launch pad by giant metal arms, which would snap away when the ship built up enough thrust to lift into the sky. The rocket was full of kerosene and liquid oxygen to be mixed together and ignited. Of course, if it blew up, Gagarin would likely be blown up with it. 
there probably wouldn't be time to bail out if anything did go wrong. And even if he could exit the ship, there was no fancy abort system, just a net to catch him if he jumped. So it was all pretty spartan. Even the ignition system his life depended on with some explosive charges stuck to wooden sticks, like giant matches. No matter, into the capsule Gagarin went, and almost right away they ran into a problem sealing the hatch. As technicians fiddled with it during the final countdown, Gagarin remained a cool customer. He asked for some music and whistled along, even though he knew it might be the last song he ever heard. When the hatch issue was resolved, the countdown continued. It was time to send a man into space. At 6.07 a.m., the countdown hit zero, the rocket lit, and rumbled to life. It would have been awesome. Gagarin had been pretty relaxed, but now his heart was racing. Another cosmonaut who was watching said it was hard to imagine another human being sitting on such a monstrous fireball, much less surviving it. As for our cool customer, Gagarin, well, he stayed that way under pressure, shouting, Poyakale, which sort of means let's go or off we go in Russian. Very informal, very cool. And with that, into the sky rose the giant rocket. The flight of Vostok 1 would consist of three stages. In each, the engines burned out and then fell away. At 6.17 a.m., the final stage would kick in with a violent jolt and carry Yuri Gagarin into orbit, making him the first human being to achieve outer space. From orbit, Gagarin had a mesmerizing view, climbing higher than anyone had flown, seeing our planet as no human eyes had before. He described the clouds, rivers, and snow-capped peaks over the radio. Author Stephen Walker, in his biography on Gagarin, points out the irony that appreciating our planet's beauty was made possible by a missile that could destroy it. Remember, he's riding a ballistic missile. On top of what he described over the radio, there was a little tape recorder in the cockpit, and Gagarin would get down his thoughts and capture the first sounds of space. Sadly, some of his first impressions are lost forever because he ran out of tape, rewound, and taped over. Gagarin zoomed around the planet at 18,000 miles an hour, or 29,000 kilometers. He watched the sunset, then rise again in a matter of minutes. As I said, it was an experience no person in human history had ever been through. While Gagarin was in space, the Soviets broke the news to the world over the radio. It was a stunning coup. It was the same case a few years earlier with the Sputnik launch, which had also caught the West off guard. This was deja vu, another win in the space program for communism. Until that moment, the mission had been shrouded in secrecy. The Soviets had an iron grip on their media, and they didn't announce stuff like that ahead of time, like the Americans. That way, if the mission ended in disaster, then, well, what mission? But now, the Soviets were crowing to the world about their stunning achievement. However, the mission was not yet a done deal. Gagarin may have reached outer space, but he needed to get home. And that was not going to be easy, as serious problems loomed for Gagarin and Vostok 1 eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. 
What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Yuri Gagarin had reached outer space, the first person in human history to do so. However, getting back to Earth was not going to be easy. The first issue was with the orbit of Vostok 1. It was off. The rocket engine that had brought Gagarin into space had fired too long, so he was too high. Best case, he was going to land way off target. Worst case, he would wind up stranded in space and die. No one could do anything about it, so the guys on the ground decided not to tell Gagarin about the problem. In fact, they flat out lied. When Gagarin asked how his trajectory was, they told him he was fine. One of the men on the other end of the radio, back on the ground, was cosmonaut Alexei Leonov. If the name sounds familiar, it's because he did the world's first spacewalk a few years later. Anyhow, it must have pained him to hide the truth from his close friend and fellow aviator. Ultimately, no one would know how things would shake out until it was time to come home. And when that time came, there was, surprise, yet another major problem. As the ship prepared to re-enter the atmosphere, a small rocket fired to slow down the capsule, allowing Vostok 1 to slip back into Earth's gravity. Except at that moment, the spacecraft went haywire. It began rotating violently and tumbling back to Earth, with Gagarin basically along for the ride, powerless to control his ship. Soon, Vostok 1 would start re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, causing blistering temperatures. If the capsule, with its special heat shield, wasn't pointed the right way, Gagarin would be incinerated. Still, our cosmonaut was as cool as ever. When he tried to tell the ground he was spinning out of control, he couldn't get through on the radio, so he managed to type out some Morse code on a backup radio while the capsule was turning end over end. The reason for all of this was a design flaw. That little rocket for slowing down the capsule was supposed to come off and fall away once it fired, but some of the cables didn't disconnect, and it dangled there, pulling the capsule upside down, with the crucial heat shield facing the wrong direction. Luckily, as the capsule began re-entry, the first thing to burn up were those cables. This allowed Gagarin and Vostok 1 to get upright again, the heat shield now properly aligned. Into the atmosphere, Gagarin went. He never lost consciousness, despite attaining 8G of force. When he came out of the other side of that intense, fiery re-entry, Gagarin could see he was way off course. He could see he was over the Volga River, hundreds of kilometers from where he was supposed to land. And believe it or not, he was looking down on the town where he had once worked in a factory. Small world. Literally, he had just made it smaller, circling the globe in record time. As for the people looking back up at him, well, I have to imagine they couldn't believe their eyes, seeing a capsule shooting across the sky like a comet, then a spaceman popping out of it. That was Gagarin ejecting, about 20,000 feet up, with an ejector seat just like the ones fighter pilots have. Then a parachute came out. Vostok 1's own parachute would deploy a short time later. Now, if you thought Gagarin was out of the woods, well, you would be wrong. His parachute deployed just fine, 
but so did his backup chute. This nearly caused Gagarin's death, as the two parachutes almost got tangled. It would have been a terrible way to have ended it all, our explorer having survived so much, only to plummet to his death back on Earth. But Gagarin would land safely in a farm field where an old lady was picking potatoes. Remember, his mission had been secret, and she had not heard the news on the radio, so when Gagarin told her he had just come from space, she must have thought he was a madman. What happened next is rather amusing. Gagarin had just traveled 18,000 miles an hour through space on the bleeding edge of scientific achievement, and to get to the nearest village, he took a horse and a cart. You can't make this stuff up. Anyhow, that is the story of humanity's first manned spaceflight. One single orbit of Earth, total time just over an hour and a half. Now, let us talk about what happened in the aftermath of this flight that shook the world, plus Gagarin's sudden fame and his legacy. First of all, the mission instantly transformed Yuri Gagarin from an unknown pilot into a national hero and a global celebrity. There was a massive parade in Moscow's famous Red Square and a world tour, a visit to the United Nations in New York, tea with the Queen at Buckingham Palace, stuff like that. The Communist Party showered him with gifts, though they were pretty modest by Western standards. A home, a car, a TV, even an electric razor. The schedule was grueling. Gagarin was always jetting off on some meet-and-greet or speech. But all of this had a downside. Soviet leaders were determined to never let Gagarin fly in space again. It was just too dangerous, and they were terrified of the idea of killing a national hero. Thus, Gagarin felt a bit like a bird who had just made an epic flight, but was now trapped in a gilded cage. He felt pressure to live up to the ideas of being a national hero. And at the same time, he was seduced by the trappings and temptations of fame and glory. And I don't mean the electric razor. We are talking about heavy drinking and womanizing. One time he hurt himself, apparently jumping out of a window to avoid being caught by his wife while fooling around with a nurse. It all kept his government handlers on their toes. They never knew what Yuri would get himself into. The truth is, Gagarin was bored and distracted. He longed to return to space, and eventually he convinced Moscow to let him train as a cosmonaut again. And sure enough, once back in the swing of things, his friend said he was his old self again. Professional, his sense of purpose back. The drinking stopped, he focused up. But any chance of returning to space would be dashed when, in April of 1967, Gagarin's friend and colleague, Vladimir Koromov, was killed when his ship's parachute failed to open on his return to Earth, plunging into the ground at full speed. Gagarin had been the backup pilot for that flight. And beforehand, he had protested to Soviet officials that the mission was a risk. And he was right. Officials had cut corners, ignored warnings about shoddy design, then tried to cover it up. Gagarin used his influence to try and pressure the government to come clean about the accident, but instead found himself out of the space program once and for all. It was just too great a risk for a national hero. Instead, he was sent back to the Air Force to fly planes. And it was on one of those flights in a MiG jet fighter in 1968 that Yuri Gagarin would be killed at the age of 34. He and another pilot in the two-seater jet crashed in the woods outside Moscow on a routine training flight. What happened? Well, there are multiple theories on that, some of the conspiracy kind. A mysterious crash, a secretive government that deems the result of the investigation classified, rumors of sabotage, poisoning, even of Gagarin faking his own death. Though it's juicy stuff, at the end of the day, there's no real proof of any of it. Usually a plane crash is just a plane crash. The KGB's investigation into the crash was only recently declassified, and it blamed bad weather. Another report said the men had lost oxygen and passed out. No one knows for sure. Gagarin was given a huge state funeral in Moscow, 
where his remains were interred in the Kremlin Wall, his country's highest honor in death. He was also awarded its highest honor in life, Hero of the Soviet Union. The anniversary of Gagarin's historic flight, April 12th, is the UN's International Day of Human Spaceflight. Reaching space has been described as the greatest feat of exploration in the 20th century, only until being eclipsed, pardon the pun, by the moon landing. Today, you can find all sorts of monuments and memorials to Gagarin, from a two-inch postage stamp to a 20-story building in Russia with the world's largest mural of him. Russia's cosmonaut training center and launch pad, which are still in use today, bear his name. So do Navy ships, the trophy in Russia's pro hockey league, a bunch of streets, squares, and even his entire hometown, renamed Gagarin, Russia. His childhood house is now a museum, and there's a statue of him, one of several throughout Russia. There's even a Gagarin statue in the heart of America's space program, Houston, Texas. In fact, there is little real bad blood between the Cold War rivals when it comes to space. I think there's just a mutual respect among anyone daring enough to take that risk. After all, you can't see borders from up there, and it's a pretty small club. American astronauts always got a warm welcome in the Soviet Union, while Soviet cosmonauts were met with the same hospitality in Houston. They got together for backyard barbecues and talked shop. Gagarin's accomplishments, by the way, pushed the U.S. to shoot for the moon as a way to top the Russians. And when NASA astronauts went to the moon in 1969, shortly after Gagarin's death, they even left some of his medals on the lunar surface as a memorial. As for the Soviets, they never got to the moon. After a head start out of the gate, they fell behind in the space race and never recovered. So that is it for this episode on Yuri Gagarin, who, like so many of our explorers we cover, ventured into the unknown and changed the course of history. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev once called him a Russian Christopher Columbus. If you want to learn more about Gagarin, I recommend the biography by Stephen Walker, who goes into extraordinary detail in his book. A lot of the great nuggets in this episode come from his book. Also, a little side note, if you like this story, I highly recommend the book and the film The Right Stuff, which I mentioned a couple of times in this episode. It is the story of the Mercury program, roughly the first five, six years of America's manned space program. It is basically the American perspective of this space race. It is a fabulous story. So there you go, the life of Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll wrap up with a few notes. First, many thanks to Ross Arbor, who researched and wrote the script for this episode. Second, I want to mention that if you want to help out the show in a way that doesn't cost you anything but a minute of your time, go to wherever you get your podcasts, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever, and give us a nice rating and review if your app allows. I appreciate it. Otherwise, thanks again for being with us today. I wish you all good health. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other fun and engaging shows. This includes The Accidental Creative and Art Smart. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? 
If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.